This show was recorded on the 24th of March in uh, the Well Theatre in Greystones, County Wicklow. I called it Talk About My Generation and uh, it's all about rugby, a game that I love and I don't understand very well. It's not every day you get to share the stage with three legends of the game. With me were Reggie Corrigan, ex-Irish International, Tony Ward, also ex-Irish International, and Mike Ruddock, Grand Slam winner, coach with Wales. Hope you enjoy. Please subscribe, share and review. It's the only way podcasts like this have a chance to survive. The title tune, as always, is Alice by Lucky Bones. Can I call you up for Alice on a Friday night? We could reminisce on old days and we could talk or fly. Sit and talk or fly. Thanks for coming. Thanks for coming. Thanks for coming. Um, so tonight I decided to do something slightly different because uh, I wanted to talk about rugby, something that I don't understand. It's a sport I love, but I haven't got a clue about it. So I thought, what better way to do it than get three experts, put them on a stage and ask them a lot of questions. So that's what we're going to do tonight. But we're also going to give you a chance to ask a few questions at the end. So there'll be a nice Q&A at the end of the day. We're going to do a little interval, give you a chance to stand up, give us a chance to stand up from these little chairs. And then uh, and stretch your legs. Hello, you're late. Okay, come in. Come on. And uh, now, did you hear what I said? Okay. That's fine. That's fine. So, um, so I'll give you a chance to ask the, these three wonderful men. We were upstairs having a chat. I should say they were having a chat. I didn't get a word in. So I said, when you come down, please at least talk one at a time. So hopefully they will. So without further ado, I will let you. Uh, Welcome the three gentlemen, Tony Ward, Reggie Corrigan, and Mike Ruddock. Where are they? Oh, there they are. Please, Tony, you go first. Then we get Mike beside you. Yeah, please. And then we get Reggie at the end. And there's a reason for this. I won't tell you why. Take your time. and. Uh, now, there we go. <laughs> I know, I was, <laughs> I was telling you about the chairs. Do we need it? <laughs> right. You're comfortable there, Mike? Do you want me to get a different chair? Good. Okay, I was going to play, uh, play you in with uh, Ireland's Call, right? That wonderful song. And, and the reason I was going to play you in with it, I just wanted to know, first from you, Tony, you know that song, Ireland's Call? that is, uh, became the double anthem, I don't know what you call it. What was your first thought when you heard it, the first time that you went watch a match? Yeah, strange. Um, I can't remember when I first heard it. Uh, one or two thoughts on, on the anthem. When we played, uh, I would have played in the 70s. I know. The we'll, get, we'll get there in a minute. Into the 80s, 70s into the 80s. And, um, and one of the lovely things, Colin Patterson, for, do you remember Colin Patterson? Yeah. Scrum Half? Um, because they're from a different background, a lot of the lads up north, um, they would have had great difficulty, obviously, singing our Naveen, not as much as today, because symbols and language didn't mean as much quite back then as it has become or did become over the years. But I remember teaching Colin the words of our Naveen because he wanted to be able 
to be part of the occasion in the build-up to a game. That's how important he saw it, not being able to sing it. I make that point because I, I, you know, I do think the anthem's very important. A um, bit biased because uh, I know Phil Coulter, uh, I was involved in Gerrard's for the last 20 odd years as director of rugby and Phil had his kids there um, and he wrote the anthem for Gerrard's as well. Um, it's, it's a lovely anthem, um, but it's difficult. Like, how, how do you measure Ireland's call against the French anthem, for example? Or the Welsh, I should say. You know, or which? Or the Welsh. Or the, absolutely. When we used to play Wales, like, I, I used to have goosebumps listening to the Welsh anthem when we were away from home. It was just, and I'm not just saying that because your man's beside me. No, no, I know. <laughs> but uh, you have a biased view. Yeah, you have a biased view of the anthem because you know Phil. When you played Reggie, you know, what was it like to stand there and having to listen to two of them? Um, well, it's funny because. I would have grown up in Croke Park as a young boy because my father was Tipperary, my mother was Galway, I had an uncle who was a Galway footballer. So in the early 80s, uh, I grew up in Croke Park. They, you know, they, they were in All-Ireland Finals, Galway were good at football at that time. So our on Naveen was the anthem. And when you heard that in Croke Park with sort of, in those days, it probably would have been 60, it wasn't the Croke Park that that's there now, it would have been maybe 60,000 people going absolutely off their heads singing it and the roar that came at the end of it. That's what the national anthem meant to me. So it was that noise and what was associated with it. And as a young boy watching rugby, I mean, my earliest memories would have been 83, 85, Triple Crown victories, in particular the 85 one with Kieran Fitzgerald uh, captaining the side. I would have been 14 at the time, and uh, our Aveen again was the anthem. It was it, you know, and the dream was someday you'd stand in Lansdowne Road and sing our Aveen. So that got to happen, and it was a wonderful thing, but then they kind of balls it up a little bit by adding in another one, and I had to learn a second anthem, because I had learned our Aveen, and I wasn't too happy about it. You know, I didn't really like it, and I, with all due respect to Phil and everything else, I just thought it was a pretty crappy anthem. But for a while there, uh, you know, for a while there, though, I was kind of thinking to myself, OK, well, fair enough, you mightn't like it, but it is recognised as being an anthem for rugby, for playing for Ireland, so showed a bit of respect and started singing it. So by the end of my caps, I was belting it out every single time that I was there. Now, I must say, I had some pretty crap experiences of it as well. We played in a... In a in a World Cup qualifier in Russia where they piped it in through Tannoy speakers <laughs> uh, in a place called Krasnyarsk, which is 6,000 miles further on from Moscow. So that'll give you an idea of much of in the arsehole and nowhere that place is. <laughs> Siberia would have been like uh, the, the Bahamas compared to it. So you can imagine what that was like. And then also in places like, I was lucky enough to travel to the likes of Samoa and... Uh, uh, I'm boasting now in Tonga and places like that and <laughs> some of the bands that they wheeled out to try and play uh, Ireland's Call was really interesting so I didn't like it in the beginning but I got to embrace it by the end Alright, thanks and Mike, when you played against these lads as in your team played against you you had to listen to two of them was it, was it, you know, was it a bit of a pain? was it psychologically? did it make any difference? because as a spectator I was like when is it going to be over? I want to watch the match No, not so much I think Ireland, you know, you have to say at the moment with Welsh rugby being the way it is. I had to leave Wales, by the way, uh, after being, being bit, beaten by Italy last week. It was time to... Oh, that's in the second half. I have the video, <laughs> sir. <And laughs> that's I, coming. Then I found out we were going to be interviewed by an Italian fella. I don't know. <laughs> I've asked Stella Lane for my money back. I said, 
So, you know, we we haven't got the greatest team as the results would uh, suggest, but we have got the greatest anthem. I believe we have. And, yeah, uh, that's good. You know, I have to tell you, it's number one. And you know, as the boys said, you know, when you're in that stadium, um, we've had to close the roof. We we're the only country I think with a with a roof that closes because we want to test it out. When we really pump it up, we can take the roof right off that stadium. <laughs> and in 2005, uh, we, we, we have some great singers uh, to sing the anthem. I mean, uh, Max Boyce, you might have seen him sort of uh, back in the day singing along. And Charlotte Church, who was the girlfriend for Gavin Henson, who was the centre uh, for Wales when I coached him. She, I remember she sang the anthem one time. And Catherine Jenkins, uh, who was the famous opera singer, she sang the anthem, uh, and in fact, when we beat Ireland in 2005, Reg, I hate to mention it, but I will several times tonight. <laughs> well, well you, waited, you waited five minutes before you brought it up. That's a world record. <laughs> um, when we beat uh, Ireland in 2005 to, to win the Grand Slam, um, someone said to me, you know, what was the favourite part of your day? And I said, well, he was having the second hug from Catherine Jenkins. Bernie, my wife, who, <laughs> Bernie, my wife, who was sitting at the back, she said, I didn't mind the first hug, but you went back for the second hug. <laughs> so I had a clip, I had a clip as she put me back in my place. But look, um, my, my two sons uh, have played rugby for um, Ireland age grade. Uh, Kieran, who's one of the fitness coaches for the Ireland team uh, in this year's uh, Six Nations for the last couple of years. I keep telling him that the fact he's a fitness coach it's all genetics, it's all his DNA. <laughs> uh, you won't believe me. Um, and then our, our other lad, um, Rhys, who was born in Dublin, but has got the Welsh name, Rhys. He's played uh, 27 times for Ireland. He's captain Ireland Great seven player. times. We're very proud of that. Great player. So, thank you very much. <laughs> yeah, he's going to be good, because he's got my skills and his mother's aggression. No, no, I was, just, I was just going to add that um, whatever about Ireland's call, I was there the day we had the Rosa Tralee as our anthem at a World All Cup. Right. All right. At the first World Cup in 1987. And all of us, we were mortified. We knew nothing about it. <laughs> and next minute, this old tape blared out. That was our anthem that day. We were playing Wales the same day. I remember seeing a video of it, yeah. <laughs> so that's how low it got. I know. When it got low. I so think that was the inspiration low. for a river dance, if I remember. See, I'm going to have to stop it. <laughs> so just to let you know, I will be asking some questions. You're probably thinking, well, that's nothing to do with rugby, but that's the way I'm going. So we'll, we'll get to the technicalities of how to throw a ball, you know, things like that. But what I'm interested in, we, we had a, a conversation yesterday morning about the pro, you know, rugby became professional in 95. And you, uh, Tony, you, you were amateur rugby at the time, right? But uh, I, I read a quote there that you, were, you got a bit too big for your boots. That was from your book, 12 Feet Tall, right? You got a bit too big for your boots, according to the RFU. And because you were playing this prima donna type of stuff, yeah, that's what they told, right? Is that, is that correct? And so what was it like, you know, so as it, watching the rugby now, that there's a lot of, you know, there was a couple of guys that were supposed to be here tonight, but it can't be here because... They're professional, and it's a whole different team. What was it like at the time to be as good as you were, and not having that outlet? You know, just being an amateur sport, which was a huge sport at the time, it still is. Yeah, I, I've mixed feelings on it. Um, what I won't concede is that even though we were amateurs, because of the level we were playing at, 
um, not so much interprovincial but international, our commitment was total. Like mm -hmm. we were training, I'd be training every day. Well, I, I lived in Limerick in those days and uh, I trained with my club as all clubs trained on a um, Tuesday and Thursday were normally rugby training nights. Monday and Wednesday I tried and do it with the Limerick soccer team back then. wasn't playing for them. I did at different times but I, I wasn't then. So I was training four nights a week and at the weekend, if you played a match Saturday, I was out Sunday kicking, and you had to. Like, that mm. was the commitment you had. And physically, we used to train so much harder as well. Not for a minute am I comparing it with full-time professionals in terms of conditioning. Um, it was a different game. I, where, where I have real problems, I suppose, <laughs> I'm becoming a bitter old man as I get older. But um, I just look back at the, the way the IRFU and um, the game was run and how we were controlled and... We were in fear, and like when I look back on the things that they got away with and how they treated us, and and I won't go into the whole Australia '79 thing no, because no, then I sound like a real <laughs> crybaby. But just things were so badly handled back then. It's it's hard to get a handle on how bad they really are, and I do get upset occasionally when I think about it, and I shouldn't. It's ridiculous. But look, it's a very different game. I don't like the game, and and. Uh, I, I'm not sure of Mike's view on it, but I know Reggie and I are at one. We don't like the game and the way it's evolved now. It's it's it, it's it's certainly not the game I played yeah. at all. It's a very very different game. I'm tempted to say in no way, shape, or form, but the shape of the ball is the same, the form is the same, and that is 15 aside, which I would question. And people think I'm off my rocker with this. I cannot see how rugby can survive with 15 players on each team. I, I really can't, because there's no space anymore. Mm. And they're getting bigger and stronger and fitter, and there's no room. Um, and, that, and Rugby League had the good sense back in, I don't know, 1895, whenever the split came about, um, to reduce, to take away the wing forwards and to reduce it to 13, all to create more space to put bums on seats, to keep mm. the game flowing. I don't know if that makes sense, but... Yeah, no, it's interesting because, as I said, when we're upstairs, you guys, the passion that was coming out, you were talking, and we, we'll get to that bit about the school system and how, you know, what Mike is trying to do in Wales. And, but what, what do you say, you know, we, yesterday morning with a coffee, you got into this topic and you, you started as a pro. Yeah, I suppose I'm uh, different in the sense that I transitioned from the amateur game to the professional mm -hmm. game. So I saw both um, ways and... So if I give you an example, I played for Greystones in the early 90s with someone called Nick Popowell, whom you'll all know. Nick Popowell, amazing prop forward for, for Ireland. Uh, Lou said, same position as me, and I had the good fortune to take over from Nick. But I watched Nick Popowell. There was a gym in Bray called the Olympia, and he trained as a professional athlete, even though it was amateur. Now, I mean, there was, you know, there was little payments going on, let's say expenses, no more or less than what goes on in GAA today, for example, uh, and has for many, many years. But equally so, I would look at GAA players and not consider them amateur. I consider them to be professional players in the top counties in the, in the, in the country, which is the likes of Dublin Kerry and in Hurling Kilkenny and uh, Limerick, etc., etc. I mean, McManus and uh, all these people are funding these counties. So they are professional. I mean, they've got the best of, of conditioning coaches, the best of everything else. So in all but name, is a professional. But going back to my point, even back then, like Tony is talking about, people made sacrifices. These players made sacrifices in those days. And Mike, you, you would have seen it in Wales as well, to be the best at the time of their peers. And they were. And that's why international rugby was as good as it was. I mean, 
I grew up watching the likes of JPRs and Tony and, you know, the, the great battles that he would have had with Ollie Campbell and Paul Dean as well, of course, uh, over the years. And, and the rugby that was on display was amazing to watch. I wouldn't agree with what Tony says about reducing the numbers. I'd have a different way of fixing the game. Oh. That's to referee it properly. Okay. Um, <laughs> <laughs> you know, there, to me, there's plenty of room on a rugby pitch if it's done right. The biggest problem that we have in rugby is the offside line. There is no such thing as it anymore. It's supposed to be behind the rook, and it's, you know, it's literally, you're, they're in the face of the attackers long before they even get the ball. If they actually marshaled that properly and gave the attacking team some space to move the ball that it can actually get beyond the 10. You know, in your day, you could pass the ball to a centre because you'd have enough time. You don't now. So that could be very easily fixed by just literally bringing in those linesmen and, and, and marshalling that uh, offside line. It's still a brilliant game, and it's still an amazing game to watch when it's done well. And my case in point would be if you watch what the French are doing now, They've gone away from the power game that they've had for, for many, many years. If you look at what Wales can do at times, and I know, Mike, I'm not, you know, because you were beaten by Italy last week, I'm not suddenly going, oh, Wales are great. <laughs> well, well done, you. You know, you're great. Like, Wales can create some of the most amazing rugby. Their, their provincial system is a basket case. We know that. Their club scene is a mess. But it's still an international rugby. They can still produce amazing rugby. They really can. So the game, it, it can be done. It, it can be done by teams. Um, I just think that the... There is a huge amount of responsibility on the powers that be, World Rugby, uh, to actually get back in control of the game, take a grip of it again. They've sold out, in my opinion. They have sold out big time to the money men. Uh, and as a, as a consequence of that, it's suffering down along the lines. Um, and it has turned the URC into a pretty unwatchable product, if you ask me. Okay. Uh, I'll stay with that for a second with the, the amateur. Mike, you were playing for Swansea. You were... Uh, on before you became pro professional, am I correct? And you were working, and that's when you had an accident, am I correct? So I'm just curious about that bit, because you were playing for Swansea. I was looking at, I, I watched more rugby in the last 24 hours than I watched in about 50 years. <laughs> and, uh, and I know all these numbers. So you, you scored an amazing amount of tries for, for, for Swansea, over 120-odd games. It was one try every second game or something, like that, roughly. You, did a, you, know, you were doing well, and you were well speed, am I correct? And then you had this awful accent. You tell us a bit about that, because I'm curious about what happened then. You know, you're very passionate about rugby. You were telling us a wonderful story. I'm going to ask you to retell it later. About it's in the blood of the Welsh. You know, rugby is in the blood. But tell me a bit about your story there, Nadie. Yeah. Um, look, for anybody who didn't see me play, I was absolutely brilliant. <laughs> <laughs> I'd like to think I was a, a decent enough player. I think I, like you say, I scored 43 tries or something in 120-odd games for, yeah. for Swansea. I worked out about one in three. I was a goal hanger, I think, in, in, in soccer. <laughs> but, you know, when I hear the comment that, you know, I played for Wales B team, I travelled 100 miles from where I lived uh, round trip to play. I went, most players from Wales in the old days went north to play rugby league. I went west to play for Swansea from East Wales. And I was the first guy who sort of went west, you know. Uh, to play in a, a Swansea team with legendary players that uh, would have been our era. But look, whoever said that this humble gentleman here, this guy got too big for his boots, you know, I'd like to meet that guy because this is, this guy is fantastic. Right? And, you know, what a fantastic player. I would love to have played against him. I couldn't have caught him because he was too quick, but uh, I would love to have played against him. 
Uh, and obviously I had, a, I had a great honor to coach Reggie as well and see him progress uh, through uh, you know the early days into Leinster and then into into Ireland to become Ireland captain. How fantastic is that? So you know, um, but I, yeah, I'd like to think I was a decent player. Um, you know, I got capped by uh, Wales at schoolboy level, capped at Wales B. Um, you know, was was playing decent rugby for Swansea. Went in the old days when we played, we had a fixture list. We didn't really realize how lucky we were because we'd play Cardiff. The better clubs, we'd give them a Saturday fixture. So Cardiff could have a Saturday fixture. Ponypool, we'd only play them on a Wednesday night because they're up in the valley. Right? <laughs> and then we'd play Bristol. We'd play Bath <laughs> and Harlequins <laughs> on a Saturday every third game. So um, we, we just had such a Leicester, you know, where they had letters on their back. You know, and, uh, you know, Clive Woodward, used to play against Clive Woodward all the time. Um, Peter Wheeler, the hooker, all these yeah, guys, you know. Um, so I absolutely love my rugby, and um, you know I, I love playing for Swansea. And I'd like to think I give a good account of myself. So much so that years later they asked me to be their coach, and then years later they asked me to go back to Swansea to be part of the Osprey. So whenever young players and young people talk to me about you know life and developing their career, I try and explain to them if you. Whatever job you're given, try and do the best you can. You'll never nail it every time, but if you try and do the best you can, you never know how that might lead to something else in the future, you know? Mm. Um, regarding my accident, well, I got knocked off a, a ladder. I was working for the electricity bo uh, board. When you get your electricity knocked out in a storm, I would be the guy that went to fix it. And uh, I got knocked off a ladder, and I ended up fracturing my skull. Um, the boys in my village regularly knocked a bit of sense into me. Um, <laughs> And I uh, became deaf in one year and fractured my back. Uh, played a little bit of rugby after, but not to the level um, that I had then. So I went into coaching. And I coached my local rugby team, my, my, my village rugby team. And um, they sent me on a course, Welsh Rugby and Level 2 course. And I did the course in Swansea, and we had a great time with all the lads. And I came back, and I thought I knew everything about rugby. And I started coaching my village team, which were a very successful team. In fact, my village team, I'd played for them in the youth, and we won the Welsh Youth Cup. Uh, and a lot of my peer group were now in the first team. So I started coaching my peer group, and we lost the first four games on the trot. And the committee called me in and said, lose on Saturday, you're gone. So it was my first experience of coaching. And I was an amateur. I had no money for this. The stress. Anyway, I chatted to the lads. I said, what's going on, lads? They said... We're not doing enough fitness, you know. It's great you've come back. We you've, we've never had so many balls of training, two bags of balls, but we, we haven't done the hard graft. So I said, okay, well I'll I'll change that. I started drilling the guys a little bit harder with the fitness. We snuck a win on a Saturday, and we went end up winning every other game for the rest of the season and won the league, right? So that was my first season. The second season we came runners up in the league. We got the cup final. I made a big decision naively, I guess. I left out our star out at half. And I picked this other guy, and we scraped the win in the cup final. And I was going back. The reason I'm telling this story is about the passion of Welsh rugby. So I went into the bar afterwards, so pleased. Everybody patted me on the back. <laughs> we won the league the year last year. Now we won the cup. I walk in. I think I'm the hero, best coach in the world. I walk in. I order a pint, and the lady behind the bar said, "I'm not serving it." I said, "What's wrong with her?" <laughs> She's the wife of the bloke you just dropped. <laughs> <laughs> 
I say, fair enough. So it, it sort of worked for me because everybody else had to buy me beer all night. They didn't put my hand in the pocket. So I got tanked up and it was great. And uh, we, we went. Uh, on the Monday, I went down to um, the local grocery. I hadn't met my beautiful wife, Bernie, at the time, who's a lovely lady from Dublin. And uh, she's going to come up and, and sing a little bit later. But <laughs> she, doesn't, she doesn't know that yet. Um, so I went down to the local supermarket on a Monday morning to get my groceries. And I put them on the, the counter, and the lady got up from the till and walked away. I said, what's wrong with that lady? Oh, that's the, that's the wife again. She was in the bar. Now she's the, so I knew I had to leave that club if I wanted to eat again and actually get some sort of drinks in. <laughs> so that was how passionate Welsh rugby was. Very good. Very good. So uh, I've known Mike for about 16 hours. I met him yesterday morning. <laughs> Reggie and Tony and I were having a coffee, and this guy arrived. I had no idea who it was. Genuinely, I had no idea. I knew, I knew it was something to do with, with rugby. It was kind of big. It was kind of big. So I anyway, I offered him a coffee. But what it struck me yesterday morning, we were, start, we were just starting to talk, and you arrived, and next scene, big hugs, and you, you three of you start to go, mention all these names, Kevin, Garvin, bam, 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 all of a sudden, you all knew what you were talking about. I, was, I didn't have a clue, so I went to get another coffee and come back out and listen to you guys. But what I loved about it is that camaraderie that comes with rugby, right? It's huge. Tell me a bit yeah. about that, because you guys, you, you coached him a number of years ago, but just tell me about it. Well, I, I knew Tony from afar because Tony was, as you said, the superstar. So when I was a kid growing up, Tony was a superstar, and it was on that level for Tony. Yeah, and yeah. I mean, what you were talking about there, uh, about Big for Boots, it wasn't, that wasn't the case at all. It was just that he was too big, actually, for Irish rugby, and they couldn't handle how good of a star he was, and that was the reality of yeah. it. Yeah, but uh, uh, I want to... <laughs> I, I just want to qualify. I just want to qualify. That came from his book. I didn't make it. No, up. I understand that. I, I understand that. But, <laughs> I, but just, I just read it from the book. But it also <laughs> came from uh, around that time too, because uh, you know there was this perceived rivalry between Ali and Baldine and, and Tony and all that kind of around the, those similar times. But I don't think it was actually as bad between the lads themselves as as what they were trying to build it up. But it suited the IRFU narrative as well to say that he was getting that way or whatever. But the reality was, and I often heard it said as well, he was like good enough that sometimes the players on his team didn't realise what he was going to do because he could make these breaks and they weren't up with him in, in times like that. But anyway, so I grew up knowing Tony at that level and seeing him on, on, on that sort of a plane. Mike, I got to know through, uh, he was my first coach. He gave me my break. I mean, we're friends for life ever since. We have been always... Um, we always got on well together, and we always will be. Um, and I followed his son's careers as well. But I owe a great deal to, to this man here because he gave me my first contract and gave me my first break, and I went on to, to, to happy things from that. But that's the point I'm trying to make. Rugby does that. Mm. Well, it did, should I say. It did that. Mm. Um, in that it was, uh, it was about... Uh, creating relationships with people, the relationships that you would have for the rest of your life. There were contacts that you could get somewhere with in other directions in life. So, I mean, if maybe in those days it might be around getting a job, you know, uh, people within clubs would look after each other. Um, you'd meet people like we sp the guy you were talking about. Yes, we, sp we were talking about a guy called Ray Gravel. Now, Ray Gravel played for the Lions. He was a Welsh legend. Older people here would know who he is. I remember going to Clinetley and meeting Ray Gravel for the first time and being a little bit in awe of who this person was. And he was coming over 
throwing arms around me going, oh, you're very welcome to Clinic Leeboy. You know, and this, and straight away bringing you into this. And every single time I went to Clinically after that, it was the same sort of response. It's great to see you. I haven't seen you so long. Great to see you, boy. And that's kind of the relationships that you build up. And I built those relationships with... So, like, there was this massive rivalry between Munster and Leinster. Huge rivalry. I mean, you know, nothing like that, that now exists, in my opinion. It's not the same way as it was. It was a huge rivalry. And then we went to City West on a Sunday when we were teammates. You know, you were the best of friends with these guys from Munster and still are to this day. I met Ron Nogara in the summer in Portugal by complete chance and we had three of the most wonderful day, days together his kids my kids and our families together friends for life you know um, and that's uh, Paul O'Connell all these guys that I would have yeah. played with that, that, those relationships are there I worry about the game now that those relationships are not going to be there for the players and you might know a bit better because your sons are still involved but I see it and I remember talking to Gordon Darcy about this um, when he was finishing up, when he was coming towards the end, I was working a lot in media at the time, and you know, I'd, I'd, I'd see Gordon after games, I'd be interviewing players, I'd do whatever it was, and I caught him one evening, and we were just sitting there, and I said, what's it like, what's it actually like in there now, Darce? What's you know, because in the old days, when we were playing, we'd come in afterwards, he'd sit down, we'd discuss a game, we'd have a beer, we'd, you know, criticize something that happened during the game, or talk about an issue that happened, we'd communicate. We'd be in there for maybe an hour afterwards and all that. He said, Reg, you wouldn't believe it now. You just wouldn't believe what it's like. The minute that you come in, it's like out with the phones. The lads are straight on. They're on Twitter. They're on whatever they look at to see what rating they got. How do they do in the game? Who's talking about them? Who's giving out about them? So this is a fella sitting beside you uh, who's not even communicating with you, and they're doing this kind of stuff. And then pretty much straight away, they're getting changed, they're getting into gear, and they're gone off home. There's none of that kind of interaction anymore between the players. And I would worry very much about that because you'd wonder where the game is going in, in that sense. And they get their moments. They do get time to spend uh, time with the players. And pity we don't have a few younger players here to, to put me straight on this. But it just feels like it's not that same bond that it used to be in our day because the people that I played with are friends for life, and I think yeah. that's the way and it I is. I think, uh, Tony, yeah. like uh, yesterday you I, were talking about... I can probably give you a definitive yeah. uh, idea of a, a, everything that Reg has just said, and it did involve me. Uh, when I was a kid growing up, I played both games, soccer and rugby, from the time I was knee-high to a grasshopper. Um, and the reason I played rugby was because uh, I went to a certain type of school. Unfortunately, that's the way the system is in Dublin. I went to St. Mary's and Rathmines, so I would have been on the school's team from the time I was under nine all the way up. But soccer was my love, and I make no bones about that. Football, I just... And I, I was half-decent growing yeah, up as a... As a bit a, more than half-decent. Well, I, I, I could play. I was on the Ireland schoolboy team. Liam Brady, actually, was on the team with me uh, at the time. At under 15, we played various internationals. So I, I was... Fairly, and my, my problem arose then when I left school because then you had to make the decision whether you went for soccer or rugby. And I went soccer. I signed professional part-time for Rovers. Louis Kilcoyne was the... Uh, the Kilcoynes owned Rovers then. Um, Liam Toohey was the manager at the time. It was just before uh, John Giles came back uh, to take over Rovers. And um, so I was a part-time pro with Rovers, playing League of Ireland. I was straight into the first team. Um, and I don't say that in any boastful way, but I, I you know... I, you were good. Were. You were good. Yeah, yeah, no, I've I, seen I, videos I, of it. Anyway, um, the following year I managed to get into the PE college because I always wanted to be a PE teacher, which was in Limerick. So I went down to Limerick um, and 
uh, was getting on fine in college, but it was proving very difficult because I'd be playing for Rovers against, I don't know, Finn Harps one week up in Donegal, Kilcoan Park, playing them in Waterford the next week. So getting back for lectures on Monday was proving very, very difficult. Uh, and it was a problem at the time. Coincidentally, uh, Gary Owen Rugby Club in Limerick had probably the best team in the country at that point in time, certainly one of them. They were uh, very dominant in, in Munster, but they lost round half. A guy who played for Ireland called Johnny Moroni with a very bad leg break, and they had no out half. And playing for them was my hero in school growing up because he was in his sixth year in Mary's when I was in first year, Shay Deering, who was, uh, as Reggie and, and Mike will tell you, was one of the, the greatest of all. Anyway, the point of this whole story <laughs> that I'm leading to is that um, through Dero, Shay, they came out to the college in Limerick when I was there and uh, I played a game for Gary Owen. Uh, I was straight into the first team, which was a cup game against... Sundays well, hadn't a clue where they were from. I didn't know where they were, Cork, Limerick, anything at the time. We played the well in the first round, absolute mayhem. Um, no, sorry, the point I'm making, I'm losing the run of myself now, was just before that game, uh, we played Wanderers. That was my first game. We played Wanderers in Lansdowne Road in a friendly. And just to give you an idea of the fitness levels as well, I played for Rovers on the Friday night against Home Farm in the League of Ireland in Talca Park. 8 o'clock kickoff, 2 hours, 10 o'clock, and then the next day, less than, I don't know, 18 hours later, we were in Lansdowne playing. Uh, uh, it wasn't AIL back then, that hadn't arrived, but it was a first team game against Wanderers. This is the point of the story. Sorry, it's so <laughs> That's long. all right, there's no rush. When the game was finished, we beat Wanderers that day. Um, Afterwards, we had a scrum half. I don't even remember him, Liam Hall. I think it would have been before your time. Anyway, Liam Hall was Munster, and uh, he was on various Ireland tours, Argentina, Australia, etc., but never actually played for Ireland. But Hawley was a real character. And afterwards, we were in the Wanderers Pav, which used to be in the corner of Lansdowne Road, at the Lansdowne Road end. It's moved slightly now. But on the table afterwards, Liam Hall was up singing... Um, every song under the sun, dancing around the table. We're all having a, a smashing time. And I always remember, any dream will do, he was singing. You know that from the musical, <laughs> Joseph and the Amazing Technical Dream Coach? It won me over that day. And the reason I say it, I was playing for Rovers every other weekend up to that point. And guys were bitching about what the other guys were earning. We had a guy called Tommy McConville, who was a very good uh, footballer from Dundalk. His brother actually was Wally McConville, who's in... Um, Bagatelle? Oh, yeah. Yes. Uh, and, I, 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 and I think he lived down around here, but not too far away. Anyway, um, but Tommy, uh, the, the lads, because Tommy wasn't training with us, they maintained he shouldn't be getting the same money we were getting. And I was a youngster listening to all this sort of talk, and it was, it was really putting me off the game. And then suddenly, here's this guy dancing around the table, <laughs> saying, any dream will do, and we're all joined again. And it won me over, and I made a decision then, now I'm going to go with this for a while. And I had a meteoric rise over the next few years to Ireland and all that sort of stuff. Oh, sorry about all that. <laughs> <laughs> that the point being, though, that's why no, I think camaraderie of the game was yeah. just phenomenal back then. And yeah. I hope we don't lose it, as Red well, said. And uh, I guess Mike, Mike might have a... Uh, like, you're still working in... There's a, there's a young fellow in, in the audience here. He's, uh, he knows everything about rugby. He plays for Seapoint Oscar. And uh, he gave me a few tips... Things. 
No, no, he's just, he, he won't, but, he, but he, he, there he is, he's there. But he, he was telling me the other day, he says, you know, it's so, it's very serious, you know, so he, if they're playing on Saturday or Sunday, there's, there's a whole, you know, don't go party, don't do this, don't do the other, which is well, fair enough, I suppose. But that comrade, do you lose the comrade because of all that? It's, it's so professional, it's so sterile. You know, you, you're still dealing with trying to bring up um, a system, you know, in Wales, you're, start, you're trying to change the system. You were talking about the school system, and yeah. what do you think? Yeah, I, I'll come on to that, but first, like, I, when I listened to what, what Tony was saying about his experience as a young man playing football, well, I was exactly the same. Um, I used to play football, there was no mini rugby in my time, so I played a lot of soccer. Uh, I was very good, I, uh, they, I played in goals, and they used to call me the cat. <laughs> I used to give kitten. I used to give kittens to the back four. <laughs> so I never had quite the same experience as a footballer as you did at that time. But um, no, look, it'll be interesting. Oscar will probably tell us himself, really. But I mean, I guess it's, every generation's got a different way of operating. You know, when you uh, talk to you know younger players now, you're aware that everyone learns in different ways, and some will will, will take in information off a PowerPoint. Some will take it in off a video. Some will learn it on the field, some will question and ask. And I think you've got to be much more skilled now in your coaching and your communication process to get uh, the message over, to understand that, and to check, to ask questions. I mean, in the old days, we just said, right, you do this, you do that, you play there, you do this. And we sort of did it. I think that these days you've got to explain it more for all the right reasons and check the level of understanding. I think it's just progression. You know, and the way he's gone. So, um, camaraderie, well, I guess uh, there's two aspects. Uh, you know, I very often get asked to talk to companies about teamwork and team dynamics. And, and when you talk about harmony or cohesion, um, there are two aspects of cohesion. One is uh, task cohesion, where you, you all work on to get the task done, to get the job done. And then the other aspect is social cohesion. And the, the studies will show... Uh, that those teams that have got great uh, task cohesion, that are really focused on the task, but also have got enjoy each other's company and support each other, interact and help each other when things are tough and you know people are having a bad day or when times are tough, you stick together, that glue that binds you. When you've got good social cohesion as well, I guess in rugby we call it team spirit. If you've got a combination of a cause to fight for, that task cohesion, and you've got really good top levels of social cohesion where the team spirit is good. Going back to Tony's point about the bitching about somebody's getting paid a bit more, that ain't quite the same team spirit as a guy up on the table giving a bit of crack, and you all want to be part of that. Mm. You know, So that's what I've learned over my 35 years of, uh, as a coach, is that if you somehow... Because there's a lot more pressure on coaches now. Back in the day, we could have a bit of fun with the Reds, as you know. But back, you know, back in the day, you know, you train hard. Uh, you know, Tony's point about fitness levels, playing Saturday, playing Friday night, Saturday. You know, um, I remember playing. I played against for Swansea against Lansdowne on a Sunday. So I played Saturday, Wednesday. Had a good booting up in Pony Breath. Played Newport in the Cup on Saturday. We got on a plane on Sunday morning, flew to Dublin and played Lansdowne on Sunday. <laughs> uh, Mark Ryan was captain, who's James Ryan's father, right? Yeah. So we played four games in a week. We were amateurs, right? I had to go to work on a Monday. 
Anyway, the point being is that um, what I've learned over the 35 years, if the magic of coaching, right? I think we've all, the coaches have fallen into the trap of to be a good coach, you've got to be technically brilliant and you've got to know your systems. And yes, that's a, that's a given. You've got, to have a, you've got to have the vision. You've got to be able to articulate and, and put the narrative around your game plan so people can understand it and execute it. But I think the art of coaching is if you can do that and develop some team spirit, then you've got a team. That's when you've got a team. Yeah, but the, the, just to add to that, I think nowadays, because of the way it's turned professional, uh, it's almost some coaches are almost afraid to allow that team spirit to develop. Uh, you know, Joe Schmidt was an amazing coach for Ireland with huge success and everything else. But there was no doubt there was, amongst the players, and this has started to come out afterwards, there was a sense of fear about being in that camp. I mean, the, there was a little bit of uh, ruling with a, an iron fist involved in that. Uh, and, and, you know, I know for a fact, I mean, I was lucky enough to, to, to play professional rugby through the early days. So we had the likes of Bridge End, Pontypool, Ebbervale, places like this that we went to, Borders, uh, Reavers, places we went uh, in deepest, darkest Wales and Scotland and, and, and all over Italy. I mean, I, I remember after a wonderful uh, night on the beer, having lost to uh, a team in Italy, in Milan, uh, in the last minute, Mike getting us up at six o'clock or half six the following morning to run around a cornfield, absolutely dying. But it built huge character in us there's no question about it we hated him at the time and cursed him for it but uh, we deserved what he did to us but it, it built character within us but also in a rugby team you need to be able to trust the people around you because it's a pretty dangerous sport I mean it's you know there's certain things that you're doing in rugby if you're lifting a second row six foot up into the air you need to be that second row to be able to trust the prop who's lifting you and holding you up while there's some other lad trying to take your head off while you're six foot in the air and land you on top of your neck and break your neck in a scrum I need to know that the hooker I can trust him beside me because there's like 5,000 pounds of pressure coming against me from the opposition scrum. We've got to be able to trust each other. All of these things that are happening are built around trust of the people that are around you. And being allowed to go to Swansea on a, on a two-week training camp and go to Jumping Jacks, the famous club that didn't look too different to this place, actually. Uh, <laughs> well, from what I remember, it was pretty dark and dingy uh, in Wales. I'm not saying here. Uh, but uh, <laughs> in, in Wales, I got, the, I got the Wales in bit. Uh, and jumping jacks and uh, all of these places. And it was brilliant. But that built character within us, it built team spirit within us, and it made us realize that we could trust the people around us. And the funny thing, just to finish on that, is I often get asked, and I see it all the time, businesses and corporations, they get guest speakers in all the time. They get these team builders in, and they get these coaches in, and life coaches and everything else, and they're trying to work out how can they create teams in business that are like teams in sport, and how does it translate, and how does it all work? Um, Office politics very often just doesn't allow that to happen because, you know, people just won't trust. I won't trust that Mike isn't going to go and try and get my job, you know. But whereas back in my day, if you had a good team that was successful, you could trust that that team was going to 
have your back. Um, and I think no more so than in 2001 when we won that first Celtic League. Mike had finished at this stage. We won that first Celtic League against Munster. We were down to 14 men after 10 minutes of the game. We were screwed. This was a brilliant Munster team. They were going to kick us off the park. Um, and we somehow dug deep. But I know for a fact that it was from all of the various training sessions we'd had with Mike, the nights out together, situations that we'd found ourselves in, in the likes of Jumping Jacks and these places in Wales. That's what dragged us through. You know, that's what brought us together and bonded us. And that's what I worry about now. That yeah, and that's have. what we were talking about yesterday morning. Well, what's your view, you guys, about this idea? Because we were talking about some young fellas we know that are doing really well. They're progressing through the school system at the moment and the good prospect to be perhaps Leinster or, or Ireland but you were worried about that Reggie what would you think and I, is, are we missing that jumping jack or whatever it is I, and I, you know I, 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 I was lucky to meet to know Mossy Keane before he passed away I had a few, few nights out with Mossy Keane and a few friends so I know what was happening then <laughs> well, yeah I, I in terms of what the, the talent that's coming through, well, no, the, 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 the way they were—it's just too, too, too much of concentrating on the, on the game itself without the jumping jack, without the the bit more. Or is yeah. it? I, I'm probably not the one to co to comment, Andrea, because I didn't play in the professional age like um, Reggie did. So whether I mean, clearly in the transition that you're talking about, they weren't. The, the, there wasn't an overemphasis on the pure professionalism and forgetting the bit of fun as well, because they do go hand in yeah, hand. Yeah. I honestly believe that. And Reggie's right about um, Joe's a Did you play under Joe? No, no, no. I, I, I he, he, um, Joe's a lovely guy. And on a personal level, I really like him. But I agree that there's this fear factor that did creep into it, and it didn't make for a healthy camp in the end. The guys weren't looking forward to going in, and it began to transmit itself onto the field in the, uh, in the end. Um, look, if you're not enjoying anything, it, it's like I could give you so many examples over the years. I remember doing something similar to this a few years ago. Um, with I did it in St. Andrews, a school I used to teach in in Buddhistown. And I remember one of the questions was, um, what attracted you to rugby? And one of the lads playing, I think you might remember him, Reggie, uh, Marshall, I think he was a yeah. second row. Or was it the out half, Colin? No, Marshall. No, no Ben he, Marshall. Yeah. Yes, Barry Ben Marshall. Marshall. That's him. Ben Marshall. Was he on one of the Leinster teams when you had it? He went off to Saracens. No, yeah. just after. But he's a good player. Really. Well, he he was a past pupil, and the answer he gave to the question I remember was, "Oh, the, you know, the, the pure physicality. I just love it." And I'm sitting there and I'm saying nothing because I was very small. Obviously, you know, it was a game for all shapes and sizes when I was playing. Um, and what attracted me to the game was the complete opposite. It wasn't the physicality. It was trying to avoid <laughs> physicality <laughs> and trying to look for space. And, you know, and that, that was a natural thing to do. And I loved that appeal. Um, and I hate to think, um, and it is the way the game is going. So I do worry about what you're saying, Andrea, that um, it, it is the enjoyment going out of the game. I can't comment because I'm not part of the professional yeah. setup, but I do worry about it that it might be. Because if you're not enjoying doing something, no matter what it is in life, I, I, I you yeah. know, it's yeah. tough. So we'll leave the last word to Mike before we take a little break because his wine is nearly over. And uh, he's the only one drinking, and I don't have my whiskey. So uh, you're still involved with that. Do you feel, do you fear that, that lack of enjoyment? Do you well, see that? Well, I've given up coaching now. I'm, you know, in my 60s, so I, I sort of, 
You don't look at Mike. You look great. You look great. Hey, well done. <laughs> He's been waiting for that for ages. Buy this man a drink. <laughs> on me, on me. Um, no, so I'm not coaching anymore, uh, and I've been out of the professional coaching scene for a while. I was coaching Lansdowne for, what, nine years, eight, nine years. I really enjoyed that. Thank you. And uh, I coached the island in the 20s. That's right, yeah. Uh, for four, yeah. four World Cups, uh, which I thoroughly enjoyed. The last one, which was in 2014 out in New Zealand, where we made the World Cup semi-final. So I was pleased with that, because when I picked them up, we were in the bottom tier. And to get the top tier was really tough, because... You had you were always against two seeded teams like New Zealand and England, so you had to work your way out of that bottom tier. So, really enjoyed that experience. A lot of great players came out of that uh, that four years, and in fact, I tease a lot of boys in uh, a lot of people in Ireland. I put a bit of Gwent into the Irish forward pack because <laughs> uh, a lot of those lads in the forwards, in particular, came through. So it is tough for these youngsters, and it is tough for clubs and coaches these days particularly with social media, um, you know, one, one drop of your guard, one mistake, and, you know, it's, it's splashed everywhere and everyone else forgets the 99.9% great work that's done, you know. Um, so it is difficult for Scott the coaches. last weekend. Yeah. 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 So it is difficult these days, I think, you know, to go outside the... But, you know, see, my point about team spirit and, and social cohesion doesn't have to involve alcohol. No, no. You know, it can be... Like, for example, when I was with... Um, Lansdowne, we got to the playoffs and the we had a down week and then a week to prepare for the playoff. So on the Tuesday night, um, I sort of warned the lads a week or two in advance and I said, forwards, you on Tuesday night in Lansdowne Rugby Club will not train. Sorry, it was the backs first. Backs, you don't train Tuesday night. It'll just be lo- the forwards. I'll take a scrum and line of session. Backs, you were going to be in the, the kitchens in Lansdowne Rugby Club. I'd organised it. And you're going to cook the forwards a meal, and I can have an independent judge, a former player, to come in and mark up the score. <laughs> and, and score the so the boys came in, and you know there was a beautiful starter, main course, and um, you know a dessert. And the, all the backs had mucked in; they had to organise it themselves, buy all the uh, you know the food, prepare it all, f- work as a team in the kitchen, right? And came out, and you can imagine a great bit of banter, no alcohol there. We had squash on the tables. The boys had the food, brilliant night. Thursday, backs trained, forwards prepared the meal, so when the backs came in, there was a, the forwards, of course, competitive nature with these rugby lads. Once they saw what they had to beat, they went full, you know, full <laughs> tilt, Mexican night. So they all came in with sombreros, <laughs> big moustaches on, uh, Mexican music, you know, going, um, and they produced the meal of a century, right? And... Of course, the independent judge voted the forwards as the winners. It was uh, quite a bit of banter around that, I can assure you. Next week, we prepare the game, and we win against Young Munster in extra time with a, literally the last play of the game, Tyrone Moran. Uh, his mother, I think, lives in, in Greystones. Tyrone scored the try uh, to win uh, in extra time. And I put a lot of that down to yeah. team spirit. Mm. There was no alcohol involved, but yeah. we still worked hard at social cohesion you know so you know i think it's it's something that um you know that team spirit when you're in those dark moments red you talk about that you know will fuel that motivation to get over the line all right thanks very much so thank you we uh we are going to take a few minutes break if that's okay because our back is not great
and the, the glasses are empty. So if you give us 15 minutes, stand up and stretch, and we'll get a drink. Thanks a million. Hello, 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 hello. Um, so look, we're going to start again. I had time to go on Google and have a look at a few things. <laughs> I had a chance to Google a few things about this guy, so I might ask him a few more questions. But uh, thanks for coming back. I thought you were gone. Uh, but uh, yeah, you'll have time to ask him questions in a minute. But I, I'm going to start with a, a couple of little videos, because um, we might start with the first video. We start with a little video I found. Uh, I mean, there was a lot about Tony, but... This one I want to show you, it's just about a minute long. Maybe if you can lower the lights a little bit. Neil, please. Ah, you're okay. No, you're okay. Um, go for it. Uh, so that's Tony Ward. There you go. Volume, please. Down from O'Driscoll. Robbie to Ward. It's another testing. Gary Owen from the man from Gary Owen. Eluding everyone, but Wales. Now having to regroup as Islander in possession, lovely possession it is to Ward Campbell. Chance here for Irwin, five metres out he's held up, the switch back by Slattery. Ward again to the open side. What a lovely dummy, Ward still. The link beautifully taken by Slattery, the try is there, his fourth for Ireland. Uh, well that, that was impressive. Um... That's just a, there was a lot of them, but uh, I think this was one of the best uh, tries, one of the top ten tries of all time. Now, that was the clip I picked, Tony. If you were to pick your own clip, what would you pick? <laughs> of, your, of your playing game. I mean, that was pretty spectacular now. I know you've done loads, but that was pretty amazing. And I know you were telling us you, you love to get away from the big lads and all that, so that yeah. kind of captured it. Yeah, but do, uh, what do you remember about that clip? No, I... I, I well, in relation to myself, yeah. uh, without talking selfishly, Reggie was right. He alluded to it earlier on. My problem was, genuinely, I don't think I knew what I was ever going to do myself. <laughs> I kind of reacted in the moment. And there's one expression I hate in the modern game when you're comparing them that you hear uh, trotted out, and it's this thing about heads-up rugby. And I'm trying to think to myself... What could possibly be the opposite to heads-up rugby? Heads-down rugby? What it actually means, obviously, is that you're playing or you're trying something that the coach has not dictated that's within the parameters before you go on the field. Um, so I'd say I would have been a nightmare to coach in rugby, uh, certainly. Um, but it's just the way the game was then. Um, it's nice to see that. I'd say you had to dig deep no, to no, find something like that. that came up. No, that came up. But it, it, looking <laughs> back now, that was 1981, so a few years ago. What's it like <laughs> to watch it back? No, the, what's which? What's it like to watch it back? Like, um, I know it's lovely. I mean, the one thing we all have are we've the friends for life. I mean, that's one thing sport gives you, no matter what code it is. Uh, but the memories are are absolutely. Um, they're precious, you know, and, and they do last a lifetime. There's no doubt about that. But I, I, I've nothing but the fondest memories of my playing days. Would I have liked to have been a professional? Um, I often ask myself that. Um, to be paid for doing what you love doing would be the ultimate. And yet, honestly, the way the game has gone... Um, uh, and, and I agree, Reggie, with what you said earlier on about referees. There's a huge issue there. Uh, I'm not suggesting that the solution going forward is just reducing two players from uh, 
the teams. But the one thing um, that I cannot get my head around that World Rugby have introduced is eight replacements. I just can't get my head around it. Because when we played, there were none. So a player got injured, you finished with 14 men. Or two players got injured, finished with 13. Now, that was bonkers. You know, you should have had, obviously, replacements coming on. But now to have over half a team coming onto the field in every game, and they all come on, all the replacements play, it does away with the challenge of um, outmaneuvering the opposition tactically, uh, in terms of conditioning, you tire them, you play the game in a certain way to move a pack around the field, which we did. And all that is gone now because a player knows that he's going to be playing for 60 minutes and then the next guy will be coming on and playing for 20 minutes. Um, it, it's, it's blindingly obvious stuff I know I'm saying, but I just don't understand how they feel that has improved the game. I don't think it has. I, and I'd like to hear Mike and Reggie's yeah. views let's, on that. Let's, let's I, ask I, our, our Welsh friend. That's uh, you. Well, Andrea, I've got to tell you, this night is going downhill, right? Um, <laughs> <laughs> why? Because why? Why? Not because of the contribution of my you know, my colleagues here, but because obviously <laughs> Italy beat Wales on Saturday, yeah. We haven't got there yet. So I'm going to show in a minute. Just wait. <laughs> We're going to watch the and whole then, game, by the way. So don't go anywhere. <laughs> and then Tony Ward must have made a thousand breaks in his rugby career. You showed the one against Wales. <laughs> uh, and I was going to ask you about that. Do you remember that game? I do remember that game. I was selling uh, programs. <laughs> I was about 12, right? Uh, no, I, I do remember that game. And let me tell you now, we were all in awe of Tony Ward playing for Ireland. We thought he was fantastic. I'm not just saying that, but he, he was, we all used to say in Wales, and in fact, the newspapers used to say, Tony Ward must have Welsh ancestry, because he, <laughs> he had the Welsh conveyor belt uh, outside half um, sidestep. So we loved him. And, um, but... Tony's points and the debate around um, substitutions and creating space towards the end of the game, which in the old days used to happen with the superior team, the fitness side would come in. I get that, but my way of doing it would be different. So what I would suggest is this. Um, the ball is in play much longer now than back in the amateur era when we played, right? So the game is faster. Okay, there's less space and the imperfections of the game back in the day, there were no defence coaches, allowed us to scan better and make those breaks and all that sort of stuff, right? But what I would suggest then is rather than take players off, we go, and you need the subs because here's the reason why. Uh, for example, I played two props got, uh, got sent off. I was playing for Swansea against the New Zealand Maoris. Two props get sent off. Who's going to go prop? It's the fat flanker, that was me. So I go up there. And I scrummage against the other <laughs> flanker for about 30 minutes and you know we're having a decent battle then he goes off it's the first time I've seen a, a tactical substitution a guy called Kevin Borovic comes on who played for the King Country and went on to play 18 times for the All Blacks six foot three prop comes on against me I'm a flanker so it wasn't really safe now I dug in there but I couldn't I couldn't move my head for two weeks so we need substitutions with the head injury protocols we need lots of substitutions to safeguard player welfare Right, but this is how you get around that and you find the space later in the game. So the professional game and all the training the boys do day in, day out in the gym and the training, you still play the game for 40 minutes each way in the same that we did in the amateur day when the ball wasn't in play as long. So I would go the soccer way, I would go 45 minutes each way. 
That would give you an extra 10 minutes bowling playtime. I'd stop the clock and I wouldn't restart it at times till the, scr- till the front rows have, have, uh, you know, have, have, have got into the scrum and the referee's happy and he says play on and the, the clock starts when the ball comes in. So you know, suddenly then, if you put five minutes on each extra time, that gives the subs more chance to go on. Um, you've got now 90-minute game, which you've got with soccer, which is professional soccer. I'd even go as far as to reduce the community game because the ball is in play much longer to encourage players to play and not be getting injured with the extra 10 minutes. I'd even go 35 minutes for the community game. Now, I also introduced rolling subs for the community game because then you can have more chance of development. And what I mean by that, we had rolling subs in the whole island league with Lansdowne. And I was against it at first because I thought as a coach, part of the art of coaching was making the right sub at the right time. But then I realised I could put a young fella on if I got someone like Reggie perhaps who's been around the block, played top level rugby, finishing his career with Lansdowne and start decide to have one last season. Reggie can go and take a little bit of heat out of the boy. Then I can put this youngster on. If it's not going so well, I can say to Reggie, hey Reggie, I can take this kid back on off you go back on for the last 20 minutes just win me the game it takes the fear out of it for the coach i can debrief this young kid if we suddenly win him by a couple of points i'll put him on for the last five ten minutes in the scrum with the lessons he's just learned and all that that sort of stuff so i think there's strategies we can use around that uh because tony with all due respect the rugby union the game of rugby union we cannot make it rugby league it has to have lineouts and it has to have scrums otherwise it's rugby league and, and, and we can't, uh, I just don't want to see that happen. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Just, the, you, you know, and I guess the, the importance of safeguarding the players, you know, and the injuries, and you've all about injuries for different, and you told me about one of your injuries, you know, I asked you, what was it like playing in Rome? And you told me a story of, uh, of your arm. But are the injuries getting worse? Um, well, we've all had our fair share of injuries over the years, the, the, the only way the injuries are getting worse are the head injuries. That's what all the focus is about. Um, the other injuries are a consequence of the game. They've always been there, and, and they haven't gotten any worse. When I, in fact, when I started playing rugby, the absolute m- main fear of any rugby player was breaking their neck. Mm. I mean, that was, believe it or not, quite... I wouldn't say quite common, but it happened a lot more regularly than it would now. Thank God, touch wood and everything else that goes with it. Um, it doesn't happen very, 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 very occasionally. A freak accident happens and something terrible happens. But it was a lot more common when I was younger. There's no doubt about it. So they brought in things to change that and make sure that that doesn't happen now. So that, that was the main one back in those days. The other injuries like broken arms, shoulders, ribs, all of those things, as bad as they sound, all those types of things, they were always in the game. At every going back to when it was first picked up and the ball was run with, they were in the game. And they happen in other sports as well. Look at GA players; they get badly injured all the time. Hurlers they're getting smashed all the time. They do happen. They, the main, the big one, and the big fear for everybody is the head injury situation, and that's understandable. Now, for me, the guys are talking about changes that could happen with the game. I agree entirely with the scrum. First of all, 
shouldn't clock shouldn't start till the scrum has started. All this restarting rubbish is terrible. Games, cynical play, everything else. So that's one. Second is uh, substitutions stay the same the way that they are. Um, my big one is the offside rule. That's enormous for me. I think you know it could be so easily managed by touch judges. Just nowadays, with all of the technology, he's in the ear, the, mi the microphone or the referee. He's just telling them they're offside. They're offside. Look behind you. They're offside because it's happening all the time. Bring them back five more meters. It'll create enormous amounts of space. Absolutely enormous amounts of space. But the big thing for me, and I know when the game changed because I was part of when it mm. changed. So what happened was around the time that Mike. Uh, came in with Leinster. After that, Matt came in, right? That was around the time of professionalism changing. So we're talking about 97, 98, in around that period of time. Um, and there was a huge emphasis on uh, defence and defensive coaches, and it came from rugby league. And they brought a lot of rugby league uh, coaches from the Southern Hemisphere up here, where the game of rugby league was huge. State of origin and things like this used to happen in Australia. Big games uh, that went on between Queensland and New South Wales. Great games of rugby league to watch. Totally different to what you were seeing in, in England. And even in those days, like so Wigan and these St. Helens, they're great teams, brilliant teams. But a rugby league player is about half the size of a rugby union player. That's the reality of it. Yeah, they look big on the television, but they're small little guys of about five foot six to five foot ten in height, stocky and blocky and well built. If you're six foot, you're a monster in rugby league. And they run upright, they run very hard, but they tackle upright. And they they tag the ball, as they call it. So what was happening in rugby union was these rugby league defensive coaches were brought into the game to create a new way of defending. When I went to school, you were taught to tackle around the waist. You tackled from the side. You never hit high. You never tagged the ball. You didn't even, that didn't even exist. But in around the late 90s, early noughties, that's the way you were taught. So all of a sudden, you were going in high. You were trying to get your hand on the ball, and you were trying to stop the offload. And what happened over the next 15 years was it progressively got worse that the tackles went higher and higher and higher, and younger kids were taught to tackle higher. So obviously, there's going to be more impacts around the head. Now, you can fix that tomorrow. No more tackles above chest height. Simple. Don't allow them to tag the ball. Tackle from here down. There's plenty. Look at this. Plenty of target area. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> no, there's plenty to aim. Bruni, coming up. <laughs> there's plenty to aim at. There's plenty of ways of stopping it. You learn how to stop. And you spot it straight away when somebody goes in high, and you just get them off. Now, you might say, you know, they're trying to do that at the moment, but it's still happening. It's still happening, so it's not being marshaled properly. And it will change the game entirely, because now you'll be allowed, the offload will come back into the game. The space will open up, Tony. Uh, so if you put a combination of depth away from the breakdown area with lower tackles, availability for the ball being offloaded and everything else, the game will open up to be fast, free-flowing and wonderful to watch again. And finally on all of that is three old fogies sitting up here on the stage talking about this. Wouldn't you think World Rugby might have the sense to maybe ask a few former players, take a bit of information, get a little bit of insight uh, from the old days and take that on board and introduce some of these things? But no, because they want the big collisions underneath it all. They want certain things to happen, and they want the game to look that little bit spectacular. Uh, but they're they're cutting their arm off to, to they're cutting their nose off to spite their face. I think anyway. Yeah, yeah. yeah very good. Uh, do you agree with Reggie, Mike? Apart from the the area of catching. I know with him. Yeah, no, I disappointed that he made those comments. Actually, <laughs> <laughs> you were getting away with murder. <laughs> 
So, uh, but I, I deserve it because all the fitness sessions I put you through, right? I, I do it. But look, you know, in the old days, the injuries were different. I mean, they're collision-based injuries now. Yeah. In the old days, we had to put up with the cheap shots. You know, you'd, you'd get punched from behind, you get booted and raked on the floor, as you know. And uh, it got me thinking about, um, <clears throat> you know, when people ask me about the old game compared to the new game, the big, the first and the biggest thing that's changed in the game is in the old days, you would pick the first name on the team sheet was the enforcer. You know, the guy to bully the other team or stop you getting bullied. Uh, now he's the last guy because he's going to give you a, a yellow card and a penalty and a red card, you know. But it got me thinking about, we had the Moriarty boys. We had two boys uh, in Swansea that we we would call our enforcers, you know. And um, in fairness, Dickie didn't know the meaning of the word fear. Um, trouble was, he didn't know the meaning of 10,000 other words either. Um, <laughs> anyway, these two boys were these two boys were our enforcers and we, we played uh, Pony Pool. Uh, in the cup, and we weren't sure if Paul was going to be fit. I said, Paul, do you think he'd be fit for the cup game on Saturday? He said, it's 60-50. Um, <laughs> <laughs> and we had a great training week. We were training hard all week, and uh, Dickie was captain. He kept saying to me, Rudd's great run, great run, DK, son, DK. So I said to him after the training, I said, mate, your captaincy is fantastic. You're encouraging me. You know, I feel really good now about Saturday. I said, but why did you say, after everything I did, DK? He said, different class. <laughs> anyway, so we go up to Pony Pool, who had, a, you know, their reputation, a great reputation for, you know, uh, getting the retaliation in first. And um, anyway, we, we had a chat and we said, look, if it kicks off, we've got we to gotta stand up to these guys. We can't be bullied. Otherwise, we lose a cup game. And in, the, in those days, it was uh, the days of Welsh rugby. It was like 20,000 people in this Pony Pool Park. It was like an open... Bank in. I don't know if you ever played up there for Munster. Munster used to play up there with a big bank in full of Pony Pool supporters. And anyway, so we got into something started kicking off, and Dickie uh, dropped their second row. Steve sat and sat him down uh, in front of the, st- the stand. The crowd went mad. He's got to go off ref. He's got to go. And um, Teddy Cobner was the Welsh captain. The Pony Pool captain came running over ref. He's got to go. Jeff Squire was a lion. He might have played with Jeff there. He comes over ref. Uh, he's got to go ref. And the ref said, leave it to me. He said, Moriarty, come here. Come with me. And he said, follow me. And he walked in the middle of the field. And the crowd was shouting, he's got to go. He's got to go, ref. And the ref said to Moriarty, I saw what he did. Well done, he said. He said, I've been referee reading up here for 10 years. I've never seen anybody get them back. It's fantastic. <laughs> <laughs> when you go back, make it look like I'm giving you a right ball again. So <laughs> it was a different type of injury yeah. back in the old days, right? Very good, very good. Um, I might show you. Uh, uh, so I was looking for videos for all of you, right? But uh, I'm going to show you something that I could only find certain things about Reggie because you play a tankless, a tankless uh, position. That's as far as my little knowledge of rugby. You can find the the number ten scoring all the time, the number now whatever. It's really hard to find, uh, you know, a a caption of, of your, your career, you know, so I just, uh, just played... It's a nice way of saying I was shit at scoring tries. <laughs> no, no. You can't find any. No, no, no. <laughs> but I just got to show you, like, a little minute or two of... Um, this is the Ireland winning the Triple Crown. And uh, just a few things. You appear in a couple of them. Uh, but I just want to ask you then a couple of questions. Don't leave, Mike. There is uh, Ireland winning against Wales again, I'm afraid. 
But uh, I think all the, the clips I found is always Wales losing. I don't know. Told him a big fella. <laughs> <laughs> I'll show you just a couple of minutes, just to remind ourselves uh, of the legend that is Reggie Corrigan. But Reggie Corrigan, Anthony Foley, Shane Byrne, Peter Stringer, John Hayes, and up they come and out with them. We knew against Wales would have to be very physical because they're a kind of team that if you're not physical with them and give them space, they're very, very elusive. They had caused all sorts of problems in the World Cup for England. Burn to throw, O'Connell at two, O'Kelly at four, Easterby at six. It? And O'Kelly in the middle once again. 62 caps for O'Kelly today. Takes him ahead of Fergus Slattery, who's 61. He's still behind McBride and still behind Mike Gibson. Now let's see what Keith Gleeson can do. Ball in hand. This player here collapsing the ball. And deliberately Trevor Woodman collapsing. And O'Gara. Taking his time. It's always good to show against England anyway. <laughs> He's got hold of that. Could it stay in? I think it has. Yes, it has. His 20th try. Really Nobody does it better than Stringer, do they? But going in between Corrigan and Gleeson there, the two Leicester men will be disappointed with their cover. But look at that there. He has no right to make that tackle, but typical of Stringer, because Robinson's looking to offload it. He doesn't see it coming. Look at this. Measure the man. What a tackle. <laughs> look terrific to see. Mind you, it doesn't do the tackled player any good. So it's still been a scrappy 20 minutes, but Ireland have just got the one penalty after from two attempts. Stand aside, out as receiver, please, okay? Six, stay out as the number, number nine. Right. They're very close, there's no doubt, Paul Honus. Stay out. It's a reputation of being a bit fussy. Holes, aim the 15. Okay. Oh, Garland, oh dear, he's way offside. The arm up very fast, and Richard Hill miles offside. Look, as the ball arrives in O'Gara's hands there, Hill is arriving as well. He's way offside. Well, he has the range, Tony, I think. He can certainly kick from the halfway line. But it's still a fair bit away, and he's not that far behind the ball. Sorry, bad quality. So it's a short run-up. And he's got the distance, and the crowd behind him seem to think it's good, and so it is! Two from three from O'Gara. Sorry, sorry about the quality, but anyway, 6-0. But... Um, that's my point, Reggie. You're there a few times, and you you won the penalty. The where you're doing all the hard work. There, there, there's no O'Gara's doubt that's the worst footage I've ever seen. Uh, and uh, <laughs> the most boring. Although I did kick well, I must admit. <laughs> no, but, no, but I, you know what I mean. I like know you, exactly what like you mean. Like you've done yeah. all the work there, and then O'Gara scores, uh, and everybody receives O'Gara. So yeah. tell me, what what was well, it like to do all the? I'll just work? talk about that particular period. So that yeah. was 2004, and funnily enough, it came up uh, last weekend. I got a phone call out of the blue to talk about that. Um, that was the Triple Crown year. That was the year we won the Triple Crown. Now um, we hadn't won a Triple Crown for 19 years at that stage. 1985 was the uh, last time we'd won it prior to that, and it was a big deal. But that particular game in Twickenham, to put it in context. England had just won the World Cup in 2003. They were a phenomenal team. They were basically a manufactured team. Uh, Clive Woodward got two and a half million, I think it was, to put together one of the best teams that, that you'd ever, ever seen, uh, led by Martin Johnson. Johnny Wilkinson at 10, likes of Hill there that, that was mentioned in commentary. 
Robinson, the guy who stepped around me in there that I missed in the tackle that Tony kindly highlighted there uh, in, in, in the commentary. Oh, so you come and tell you. Yeah. <laughs> Brilliant. <laughs> we'll get to that in a minute. But I mean, if I ever caught uh, Jason Robinson, there would be seriously something wrong with me. He was one of the greatest, uh, fastest, uh, brilliant backs of all time, an amazing player. But the point being, they were a phenomenal English side. And we went over there, eight to one underdogs in Twickenham on St. Patrick's weekend um, and destroyed the party. We, walk, we, we, we walked out onto the pitch. They had the trophy sitting on a, a table <laughs> at the end of the tunnel. Uh, the Webb Ellis trophy was right there like that lamp is. So that when we walked by out onto the pitch, which was there, we had to walk by the trophy. And it was a reminder to us that you're playing the world champions. And it was the homecoming, you know, it was like, this is it, England, we're here to our beloved crowd, first game, blah, blah, blah. And we went out and we beat them and completely wrecked the party. And it was absolutely amazing. <laughs> uh, and and uh, Twickenham was on fire that day with Paddies, uh, who were just, they took over, absolutely took over. So it, it was a phenomenal achievement. But um, what you're saying there about, to get back to the point, that's rugby, though. You know, the forwards do a lot of the hard graft. They do a lot of the hard work. But we know that. We know what we're getting into. We're not worried about that because we're quite happy for that ball to go out to the back line and for them to get the scores and to get the plaudits or whatever because we know that we're actually the most important people on the pitch and that we made it happen, so we don't care. And listen, and if, you, if, you, if you weren't playing the position you were playing, what would you love to be? I'd love to have been Tony's position. In fact, I, I, when I was um, under eights, where I started with Brother Morris in Prez in Bray, I actually started at fullback. I started at number 15 and worked my way right the way in to number one. Uh, so <laughs> as I grew older, I grew out, and I went from fullback right the way up along the back line right into the prop. So I played everywhere. I played everywhere on the pitch. I played in Greystones. I played everywhere bar hooker in the forwards. I played back row, I played back row, eight, flanker, second row, tight head and loose head, and full back. Brilliant. <laughs> well done. So just to finish the, this one minute video, again, I was trying to find something that Wales won, and, <laughs> and, uh, and then I remember I met this guy yesterday that you know, coached Wales when they won the first uh, Grand Slam since 1978, so fair play to you. So can we show this? Literally, it's one minute. That's all I could find. But just uh, it just reminds us for a second of... Uh, no, you can stay. Remind us for one second what, uh, what that team... And I hope I got the right year, by the way. Well, you're in the picture. And you can tell... It. I, I don't know what the video is for, but, the, but um, the, rest, the rest is history, as the video says. I don't think it's the right video, but just... Uh, but, but Mike is in it. That's 2005. Oh, oh. 
So Mike, uh, not sure whether that was the right footage, but two questions for you. First of all, what were you writing on the on the piece of paper while Gavin Enzo was taking? And no, no, that was paper. And uh, that was phenomenal. Grand Slam in how many years? 1978 was the last time. Yeah, I think it's something like 27 years since the last Grand Slam, and. Um, you know, as Reggie said, at that time, England were the world champions. And I always say, we didn't just beat England, we absolutely hammered them. 11-9. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> but Welsh rugby had been in a doldrum, so we have bounced back. Even We'd lost to Italy, actually, the year before. Did you? In Italy. Not me, personally, but the, the team. And um, so we can bounce back. We are a resilient nation. Despite all the stuff that's been said tonight, uh, we will bounce back. But uh, the next game, we had to go to play Italy uh, away. And that's the one banana skin. You know, you know it's going to be tough against England, but you don't want to lose in, you know, against Italy, with all due respect to, to you, Andrea. But um, we, <laughs> we suddenly, you know, there was no interest in, in travelling to support Wales because we weren't winning. Suddenly, we'd beaten the world champions. The whole of Wales wanted to support us. So we got to Cardiff, and I said to the boys, don't wear your, uh, your suits with the ties. We'll be nice and relaxed. We'll travel in tracksuits. So we travelled through in tracksuits. We went through, you know, queuing up to go through passport control. We got through now, and all of a sudden, in the gate area, there's like 1,000, 2,000, 3,000 fans there. You know, we weren't expecting them to be that many numbers there to support us. So we walked through in Cardiff Airport, and one by one, the boys went through, and the first one to go through... Uh, was uh, Michael Owen. Uh, you would have seen he threw that, that long pass for Shane Williams to score in the corner. And the, it, the crowd saw the Welsh team coming through in their Welsh tracksuits, and they're all excited, you know, gone quiet. Michael Owen comes through, and a voice in the crowd shouted, well done, Michael, and way massive cheer. So all, everyone goes quiet, who's next one through? So the next one to come through, now they look like that, in his Welsh tracksuit, Shane Williams, scored the winning try in the corner. So Shane comes through, voicing the coach, says, well done, Shane. Hey, even bigger cheer. They all look in and go quiet. Who's, and they all say, who's going to be next? Who's going to be next? Who's next through? Gavin Henson, he kicked the long-range kick. This is 100% this is true, I tell you. Gavin Henson walked through, and everyone's quiet. They see Gavin come through, and a voice went, well done, Gavin. Hey, massive cheer. Nearly took the roof off the airport. So they're all excited. Now, who's going to come through next? Which of our Welsh teams are going to come through? And the next guy through was our team nutritionist. <laughs> now, he did a fantastic job with the team. He struggled with the management. <laughs> that was a bit of a battle for him. Anyway, he came through and he was vertically challenged. He was, uh, he was not quite five foot tall, right? <laughs> And he came through, this is true, he came through in his Welsh tracksuit. Everyone's quiet. Gavin Henson just come through. Who's next? Who's next? Quiet. And this fella comes through in his Welsh tracksuit and it's a terrible, awkward moment of silence. <laughs> Nobody knows who he is. 
And all of a sudden, this voice goes, well done, mascot. <laughs> <laughs> and that's 100% true, and he had the biggest cheer of the day. <laughs> but, and, Andrea, following on from that, that year, uh, I had the misfortune of being on the Irish team that was beaten by Wales. But, you know, we, we, we took it well because it was Mike. But uh, it was 2005. It was a Triple Crown game for us but it was a Grand Slam game for them. So, uh, but I'll never forget, and never forget as long as they live. Like, you, you, we've had some amazing moments as, as players and coaches uh, in our careers, but that particular game against Wales, I had never experienced anything quite like it. We were staying at a hotel, the Hilton, in the center of Cardiff, just around from the castle. You know, it's about, at best, Mike, a five minute drive from the hotel to the stadium. And the stadium is amazing. The Millennium Stadium is an amazing place to go for anybody that haven't been there. So it's it's a bit like what I would imagine an old Coliseum would have been like in that the it's like it's huge, but also the it's straight up, you know, so you're the crowd are right on top of the pitch. But to get there, we left the hotel. And it was 45 minutes it took us to get... Now, I reckon Mike had set up roadblocks on purpose <laughs> or whatever. But they were coming in from 8 o'clock that morning from the valleys, as they call them, or for wherever. 250,000 people descended on Wales without tickets on the capital, and, and, you know, into Cardiff for that game. From 8 o'clock in the morning, they were outside uh, Weatherspoons trying to get into the pubs outside. We were having breakfast in the team hotel, and there was lunatic Welsh lads banging down the door of Weatherspoons outside trying to get in for pints uh, at 8 o'clock in the morning, half 8 in the morning. And it just started then, and it kept going. So we got on the bus, and it took us 45 minutes. We were late for the game. We got there with very little warm-up time because I'd never seen anything like it. And they beat the sides of the bus the whole way. We had police horses marching us up to try and get us there on time. It was an incredible experience. And the noise inside there, you couldn't have lost that game. You could not have lost that game with the noise that was inside the stadium. So you talk about Welsh rugby and the passion. And, you know, I had experienced it before, but nothing at this level. Uh, so I can only imagine what it must have been like for the next two weeks after you won the damn thing. <laughs> And Tony, you were saying you grew up uh, looking at Welsh rugby as being the rugby to follow, right? That, that was Welsh rugby was, and you guys were talking about how passionate and how important Wel Welsh rugby was for. Were you at that game, by the way? Comment commenting. Oh on yeah, I was at all those games. I used to. Were you, were you, were you giving out about Reggie not making yeah, the tackle? Yeah, that sort of stuff. <laughs> <laughs> Actually, it's funny to put it in context. You're talking about 2005. That was 27 years since the previous one, was that it? I played in that previous one. <laughs> that puts it in context in 78, sadly. No, the great thing about the Welsh guys, you mentioned Ray Gravel earlier, and Grav was just, you, you couldn't make him up. He was your version of Moss Keane, not in terms of um, position he played or anything like that, but just a phenomenal character. I toured the lines, as you said, with, with Grav, and it was just, just so sad that he passed away so early. Um, I was brought up on the daring deeds of the great Welsh teams, particularly of the 70s. Um, Gareth, Benny, Barry John, um, Grav, JPR. My favourite player was Gerald Davies, mm. uh, TGR. He just had that amazing sidestep. Uh, and that's yeah, the Gui event, the Pontypool front row. Yeah, 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 yeah. It, DQ, Derek Quinnell, that'll be uh, the lads 
dad today. Uh, and a lot of those were on the Lions tour. I would have been on in 1980 when Billy Beaumont was captain. Um, so it was, it was the saddest thing of all was after that game in 78, most of that team retired. They made a decision. It was a filthy game here in Dublin in 78. Do you remember that? Were you at that game? We watched it, certainly, in 78. I was not. Yeah, it was a really, really dirty game. Nasty. It was a game which J JPR took out Mike Gibson at one stage. Gibbo chipped. Um, JPR took him out on the base of just giving away three points as opposed to five or seven. Or it might have been four and six back then. I can't remember. Um, but yeah, Andre, it was just, um, it was just fantastic to... Um, it's fine. I'm quite friendly with Ollie Campbell, believe it or not. We're, we're very close over the years. And um, Ollie always hero-worshipped New Zealand rugby. And in the long term, he's been proved right. I, I love where New Zealand rugby is still at. I, I still think they are the, the best pace setters or trend setters for me. I love the way New Zealand rugby, the, the way they play their game. But certainly in the 70s, um, Welsh rugby was on a different planet. To so, everybody else. So to that point, right, the elephant in the room is the Six Nations with Italy in it. What's the point of Italy being in, in the Six Nations? And I, I'm asking for a friend. <laughs> no, seriously, because I've been watching for 20 years. Rome? And 20, that's the only reason I know. You go to Rome, you have a great weekend, fabulous. But for 20 years, I keep hearing all my Irish mates, oh, the Italians are getting better. And you played against the Bergamascos which, and Paris, which were probably the best team at the time. And then, boom. So if the game was 20 minutes, we'd probably win the World Cup. Well, I, I, I'll give you just a little yeah. a bit of an idea on that, OK? Yeah. I lost to Italy right. in, in a game in Bologna uh, in 98 or 99. We lost the game to, to Italy. And that was considered a major thing at the time. Um, I looked at a, a, an interesting um, uh, information infograph the other day. And, and it showed the championship winners for the last 22 years since the Six Nations mm. championship has uh, come about. And England have seven titles, Wales have six, uh, France have six, and Ireland have four. Scotland have none, and neither do Italy. Ah. So we're always on about Italy and why don't we get rid of Italy and why do they cause an upset at the weekend. Um, why don't we get rid of Scotland? They're, they're no yeah, good. Yeah, yeah. So, like, you could easily turn around and try and get rid of Italy or get rid of whoever, but that's not what the game is supposed to be about. So, what has actually happened is that, again, uh, the powers that be have let Italy down in that if they want them in the game and want them to be a part of the Six Nations Championship, well, then you've got to fund that. You've got to make that happen and you make, you've got to share a little bit of the wealth. And we know that CBC and these investors have come in and spent huge amounts of money buying TV rights and buying everything else. But it's not much use if it's only going to be England or France, occasionally Ireland and occasionally uh, Wales that are going to win it. So like, you've got, to look, you've got to step back a little bit and you've got to look at it and you've got to put it in context. France, are, France should win it every year, if the truth be told, because that's got the most money in the game. They've got the big sugar daddies running the clubs over there and the, the biggest rugby population. England should be the next team that should always win it. We should never get near it. And then Wales and Scotland and Italy kind of are the, making up the numbers. Yeah, I think there's some good points here, Reg. But I, I believe in the power of coaching uh, as a coach. And um, Sean Edwards won three Grand Slams. He goes to France, they win a Grand Slam. Yeah. Uh, Italy can't win a game for the last seven years. New coach comes in, he improves them steadily through the Six Nations. They beat Wales, right? 
So that's nothing got to do with structures because they've got the same structures they've had the last seven years. That coach made a big difference. Uh, and that's what coaching can do. So suddenly, you know, sometimes we, we go overboard about wanting to rip everything up and throw the baby out with the bathwater. Warren Gatlin won three, well, he won three Grand Slams when regional rugby in Wales was, was, was dire. So, um, you know, I think coaching is very powerful. And uh, the, uh, the 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 new Italian coach has done a remarkable job. With Crowley, him. yeah, yeah, Crowley, Kieran Crowley. You know, so I think that's that's something you can't forget. So, you know, have Scotland got the coaching right over the last ten years? You know, cause well, yeah, but they they haven't. But, but I mean, they, they they need support. Scottish rugby is struggling for money as well, uh, as is Italian. And and I know what you're saying about good coaches, but coaches are only as good as the players that they have as well. So they need to have some decent players to be able to work with. So it's, it is, it's a mixture of both, I think. Yeah, I think what's encouraging as well, the under-20s won three games, and they do need young players, good young players coming through. Um, I, again, I covered all those games when Reggie's talking about in Bologna, and we actually lost three games in a row around that time to Italy. But it was a brilliant Italian team. It was just a golden generation, a bit like Wales in the 70s, that the Italians had then. And they've struggled. And I, I agree with Mike. I think a coach makes all the difference in the world. And I think Kieran Crowley is making a difference and hopefully will. But go back even further. I mean, you know, back before Italy were invited into the Six Nations, Romania were an incredible power back then. Um, I remember playing on a Munster team after we beat the All Blacks. We were thumped by Romania down in Thoman Park. And they drew with us in an international as well in Lansdowne Road. They were very, very strong in the late 70s, early 80s. They've lost their way. I think a lot of it had to do with the Ceausescu yeah. regime and mm. communism, and there was a lot of money being pumped into the game. I accept that. Uh, what I would worry about, though, Reggie, is if we are to let a team go from the Six Nations, who will they be replaced by? Can't be Georgia. Yeah, I wouldn't let them go. Portugal. That's my point. I'd support yeah. what they're doing and keep them in and, and develop them more. I mean, equally so, you could turn around and say Argentina in the championship down under. I mean, the Tri-Nations was the championship for, for many, many years. And again, let's face it, Argentina are not uh, going to win that tournament. But there are times when they'll have a really good team and they'll do very well. And again, it's another team that I've been beaten by and one of the most physical teams you'll ever play against. Um, but, like, you don't want to lose Argentina out of that championship either. And also, like, there's a team like Spain now have qualified for the World Cup next year. So that's an amazing thing. I've got friends in Spain. I've done a little bit of helping out a friend of mine in Madrid with a team called Alcalá. And they're, that club in Alcalá and Madrid are already organising the trip for next year to go up to Bordeaux to play Ireland in 2023. That's their World Cup, you know, playing against the likes of Ireland. Uh, and that, the whole country gets it. So what it does is... If you look to the likes of Italy, the likes of Spain, Portugal, these upcoming nations, Georgia, Romania, they look at this and they go, well, maybe someday, maybe yeah. we can aspire to be in a competition like that, yeah. you know? I think that's a really important one. Uh, and the other point I want to raise, sort of linking into that, is the, the coaching thing I mentioned, but the power of a cause. So you said about we hadn't won a Grand Slam for 27 years, right? We didn't di directly mention that in the lead-up to that game against Ireland, but everyone was aware of it. Mm. Uh, you know, when I uh, coached Swansea, we hadn't beaten Clethley in 11 games when I took over. And the headline in the paper for the start of the season was Superflops. <laughs> I pinned it up on a notice board. I said, we'll take that down. 
the day we beat Clenetley because they were local rivals. They gave us a cause to aim for. Mm. We beat them. We, we won the league that year. Um, so having a cause to fight for, Italy hadn't won in the Six Nations for so many years. Yeah. Kieran Crowley is banging the drum. We've got a cause to fight for. Yeah. You had a cause to a good coaching environment and I tell you, it was a really powerful thing. Great. I'm delighted. So we still in the Six Nations as far as we're concerned. That's great. Now, a couple of quick questions I'm going to leave the, the audience ask you. Reggie, if you hadn't played rugby, what would you love to play? Don't say golf, otherwise I'll leave. <laughs> what would you love to play? Um... I think I'd like to have been a, a good Gaelic footballer. Um, I, I, I love hurling. It's probably my favourite of them. But I think I'd, I'd be more inclined to, 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 to fit in as a Gaelic footballer. I'd like to have been a, a good Gaelic footballer. I think that would have been the one for me. Okay, great. What about you, Mike? What would you play? I know you played a goalie for... A yeah, no, I'd love to have been a jockey. <laughs> <laughs> I won, the man, won many races, but I had a good goalie. <laughs> I don't know, I just think any team sport because I mean being part of a team, that's yeah. what it's about. I mean yeah. I I so respect individual sportsmen, you know, uh, a person that goes in on their own. I don't know, it could be someone uh, you see in the Olympics, you know, throwing the discus or you know, shooting or uh, boxing. Those individual sports have got a, a mindset and a mentality that so superior. But you know, I also think the other side of that, and it's being part of a team, is like something you've never, you can never sort of experience otherwise. You know, it's mm. feeling that team spirit. You know, being part of a successful dressing room, getting hugs off your mates. You know, looking back on clips like that and being mm. part of a team, oh, it's unbelievable. And you know, you bump into someone that you've been part of a team with 30 years later, a bit like we happened yesterday when we walked around mm. the corner. I see the two lads. Um, Wow, you know, straight away you want to chat to them. You know, it's it's a great way of making friends for life, being part of a team. And uh, on that, Mike, it's quite interesting. That, you know, there must be, um, I don't know if there is, but leaving the game at, at the height, whether you won the Grand Slam, the Six Nations, you know, all of the, the wonderful things you all did. You know, what's it like, you know, that come down when you're no longer Reggie Corrigan playing for Ireland, Tony Ward playing for Ireland, or the Grand Slam winner? What's it, what's it like? afterwards you know when you just that's it your rugby is over for you as such um well i think a lot comes down to your mindset and the, you know the way you approach things so for example when i uh me and the west rugby unit fell out I, I i can't go to watch wales i don't get an international ticket uh, it was part of one of the things we fell out about in the contract negotiation so i can't go to the millennium stadium i can't watch wales i don't get a ticket unless i join the club and apply for one anyway the point is, um, when I had a bit of a fallout with the WRU and my sort of uh, role there finished, I went to watch Riso, a younger boy, play for Wales in the 16s in Italy. Uh, and we, uh, through a friend of ours, the village that was, it was in, being held in was just outside Milan. We knew Silvio there who ran the club. And we went and we stayed with Silvio, Bernie and myself. And he looked after us for the weekend. It was fantastic. And in, we, we went to the clubhouse pre-match on the Saturday um, and we had a beer or two there we waited in for the game to start and in came a bus full of the Welsh parents uh, of, of all the other lads playing and, and, and I just had this fallout with the WIU and so everything went quiet you know people saw me there and 
they were afraid to say anything. And a guy, one of the dads came over, he said, Mike, how's it going? I said, great, yeah, looking forward to the game. I said, what position is your son playing? He said, scrum half. I said, great, oh, well, I hope he goes well. I said, listen, I'm going to go to the beer. I know Silvio. Do you want me to get you a drink? And everyone's listening now because they're all wondering what's going on. And uh, I said, I'll, I'll get you a drink. He said, no, no, I'll get a drink. He said, you're on the dole now. <laughs> and you know just things like that just bring you back yeah, into it yeah, yeah. at the end of the day we're only humans we yeah, do our yeah. job and we go out and try our best but hey we're only humans and we try our best and, and you come out the other side and do something else yeah, yeah very good well, so Reggie what about you you're kind of the last of, of this crew anyway uh, 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 you know, you're not that long out of the game what was it like to uh, I can in, in all honesty say to you it's one of the biggest challenges I ever had in my life mm. That's uh, the absolute truth of it. So I retired at 36, I had 10 years of, as a pro. I worked prior to becoming a professional, so I was quite late turning pro, but I had 10 wonderful years as a pro where that defined my life. Uh, I was never out of contract. I was captain of Leinster for four years. I had loads of Irish caps. I went on many, many tours. And literally on a damp evening in Donnybrook, it all finished. And I had a great reception afterwards, and there was a big tent, and we had a brilliant night. And on Monday morning, I walked up and I said, what the fuck am I going to do now? And that was pretty much the realization hits you there, and you kind of go, shit, life goes on. At 36 years of age, life goes on, let's start back into pre-season, whatever, very shortly. So it's one of the biggest challenges I ever had. For the first couple of years, I enjoyed not getting broken up every weekend. I mean, everybody always says to you, um, it must have been amazing getting paid to do what you love. Oh, wow, it must have been incredible. It was, but there was some real hard work in there. I mean, you had to train constantly. You had to recover from injuries. You were constantly on the road. You were gone, uh, you know, four months of the year away from home. Ask Bernie up there. She probably never saw Mike. Um, you know, you put things on hold. You missed family events. You There was a lot of stuff in it. There's a lot of stuff in it. But it then comes to an end and you suddenly have that couple of years where that, that you don't miss any of that stuff. You know, it's nice having your time back. It's nice being your own boss. But then you've got the challenge of what do I do next? Where do I go next? And you've got to piece it all together. And that is definitely one of the most difficult challenges I've had uh, over my lifetime. Thankfully now I've, you know, I know where I am and everything is cool, but I would worry desperately about the younger players. Now you've got a couple involved in it. Um, I would worry desperately because I worked before I played rugby professionally. Some of these kids are coming straight from school into academy, straight into professional rugby lifestyle, and when they come out the other end of it, they'll have absolutely no idea about what life is really like, and that's a big worry. And is there a structure there for the young guys? There is a structure of sorts there. You know, there's a union that are supposed to be guiding them through, they would say, uh, and helping them, but it doesn't... It doesn't quite hit the nail. Yeah, no, I think that's a great point. And uh, sorry, uh, Tony, to dive in there. But uh, one of the things I'm doing, I'm no longer coaching. I'm recruiting players to Swansea University to create a bigger talent pool for us. So we are trying to reverse the trend. We're bringing players in from England into Swansea University to study. A lot of them will be Welsh qualified. So we build a network in English schools. We've got boys coming down from Kirkham Grammar School, boys coming from Millfield, boys coming from... West Buckman School in Devon. So we, we are turning, you know, we, we are reversing the trend big time. And what I've done is engage with a, a number of local companies and we're now able to offer bursaries linked to a company for players to come into 
study at Swansea University. And then they have work experience, they have uh, potential opportunities for vocational training. If they don't make it with us, uh, they're already aligned to a company. When they come out the other side of university and our academy or pathway structures, they're able to go to an interview and articulate their experiences in a working environment. So it gives them a chance with the education behind them, with the support of a bursary, and with the experience of being linked to a company, it gives them a fighting chance to come out the other side and, and make progress. So it's on the back of his story, you know, seeing my own sons in professional rugby, seeing other guys struggle to find their way in that transition mm -hmm. period, is something I'm very keen for us to lead the way on in Wales. Brilliant, well done. Um, okay, I think I've run out of questions. <laughs> I just don't know anymore. I, I was going to ask you why you keep kicking the ball out of the pitch, because what's the point, you know? I'm, I'm used to football where the ball stays on the pitch, but I might open it up to, to the audience to ask you a couple of questions, but, um, and I will show you that little video. I saved it for you for the end. The, the one from last weekend that I didn't see. Uh, I, I saved it for you, but if we, get a, we get a microphone if somebody wants that. <laughs> no, but it's... Uh, yeah, I don't know if anybody wants to ask a question, the lads did. Yeah, there's plenty there. So there's uh, a gentleman at the back there, Neil, if you can see him. No, sorry, at the, the back of the... Yeah, game plans going on to a pitch. How would you react to your team changing the game plan on the pitch to react to what's in front of them? Um, well, I, I think probably, and, and I see Will Matthews up there. Uh, Will played rugby for Wasps uh, and Gloucester back in the day before he got a neck injury. You, you won't see him in the shadows, but Will uh, coached for me up in, in Lansdowne. He's a fine young coach, um, great-looking fella. Um, he used to <laughs> put... Still a good. He used to put a lot of numbers on the on, on the attendance from uh, the female sort of uh, side of <laughs> our supporters. But a lovely guy, and and so Will would know me from my coaching days in in Lansdowne in particular. And I probably, you know, like all coaches and like everyone, you you sort of evolve over time. And you know, I think I got to a point in Lansdowne. Will might or might might not agree with that. Where I gave the boys a relatively simple structure, and it was it was basically to set them up to try and get into what I call the crisis corridor, which was what Tony did there, you know, footwork to get in behind and pass the ball and flood the channels and support. And that's basically all I coached. Um, we had a couple of simple patterns of play with a couple of simple shapes, but literally everything I coached was to use footwork or to use passing angles or running angles to put us in the space behind the first line of the rugby league defence that Reggie talked about, and then we had to anticipate that and, and get to the, to the inside and outside shoulder of that player. And if in training we played touch rugby a lot, and if a guy didn't get to that space and put the ball into two hands and look left or right, I'd take the ball off him and give it to the other team until we learned to do that. And if the support players weren't on his shoulder, if he made a half bust and looked and couldn't pass it to someone because they hadn't anticipated that, I would give it to the other team and they'd go off and try and do that. And it was as simple as that. And 
you know, it was based on what I saw from the Welsh team, from what I saw from Tony Ward. Didn't see it from Reggie. It was footwork, you know. <laughs> <laughs> footwork into the corridor. By the way, the clip they showed of Reggie, they speeded that up, right? <laughs> to make it look a bit better. <laughs> but, uh, but it was all, it's all based on, you know, trying to come up with... I, I, and, and do you know what? I'll tell you very quickly the reason behind that. What, well, there's several reasons. But one of the reasons was I coached the Wales B team and we had a, a good season. We had a share of the championship and a couple of our boys went up to play for the first team and they were in the squad for the next season. So we used to train in the indoor barn and then we'd come off and as we'd come off, the senior team would come in and one of our boys was a prop and he'd got promoted to the senior team. And I said to him, his name was Spencer John. I said, Spencer, congratulations. You got your cap. You played Saturday. Well done. But I noticed, I said, when you play it now, you've got wristbands on, like tennis white wristbands with writing on them. Is that the family name of the kids or what's on your wristbands? He said, no. What I do, he said, I've got to write there. When I, when I come out of the scrum, where I've got to go to each pod. <laughs> I said, you're joking. He said, no, I've, this is the new system we've got, the new coaches. I said, mate, that's not rugby. So... <laughs> Well, am I right there? It was a very loose system based on two or three things, but it was all about getting in behind the opposition. And, you know, we went through all in the league, so I'd like to think it worked okay. Thanks. There's a, another question there from uh, Oscar behind you, and then, uh, then the gentleman at the front is a young man there. Um, and then we give it to the gentleman at the front. <coughs> uh, I was just going to ask uh, what you found to be the biggest... Uh, changes in kind of opinion around uh, changing from unprofessional to professional in the game as coach and as player in the mid-90s. How a uh, public reaction to that kind of thing? Who are you asking now? Sorry. Uh, Mike and Reggie, just I, as a coach I, I, and as a player. Yeah, I, I suppose I'll start. It kind of came, it came the, the biggest change, I suppose, was it's a mixture of the two, okay? So I'll put it to you like this. So what happened was the attitude was, well, you're getting, played for the g you're getting paid to play the game now and paid to train, so we're going to train you. So, for example, when we were with Ireland in the beginning, there was a fellow called Brian Ashton who was the coach, and we used to train out at the airport, and at the time, half the squad were in England playing in the professional league over there, and half of us were here playing the provincial setup. So training was for three days over in Alsa, which was the sports ground for the airport, uh, social club over there and training would be two and a half hours in the morning and then an hour and a half for lunch and two and a half hours in the afternoon so it was five hours a day of training for three days in a row where you hammered the living shit out of each other and uh, you know, smashed scrums did 50 scrums a day, line outs everything, every single thing you could put into it but the attitude was, you're getting paid for it now, and that's what you're going to do. But they had no idea then why on a Saturday, by the time it came to a game, lads hadn't an ounce of energy left. Now they're never on the pitch for more than an hour. They're, they're tracked, and it's, it's all scientific, the whole thing that's in around it. So I think that was probably the biggest change and also the biggest mistake that was made at the time of the transition from amateur to professionalism. It took a long time to change that attitude as well. Oscar, you, you, you're a smart lad. You played in the backs, you? Yeah, I thought so. <laughs> <laughs> you're a bit too smart. I think Tony better answer this one. Then. You've got two forwards up here. Um, 
Are you are you related to like moving from one club to another as well, or is it? Or the transition from amateur to professional. Yeah. Well, look, it was it, it was look. I liken it to. I once met a lady. I did a rugby tour to um, California for Swansea. So that was what 1981, something like that. And I remember talking to a, an elderly lady one time, and she said. She was about 96, and she said, I, so this was in 1980-ish. She said, so she had 100 years ago, say she was 100, right? She's just short of 100. So she said, I was on a wagon train from the East Coast to the West Coast to set up home in California, you know? Um, and, you know, you're talking cowboys and Indians, you're talking how far has that transitioned in 100 years, right, in the West Coast of uh, America? We were a bit like that. We were like these frontier guys coming in, no idea what we were doing because we'd only been amateurs and suddenly they employed us to be professionals. You know, I'd worked for the electricity board fixing cables, right? <laughs> I had to try and suddenly become a professional coach. When I coached Reggie, I had to be his fitness coach, I had to be his forwards coach, his defence coach, his breakdown coach, his line coach, his attack coach, his kickoff coach. Crazy stuff, you know? So we didn't have a clue what we were doing, really. Um, and over that, but through working through it and our mistakes, and you know, the other thing is the administrators as well. You know, I used to go every week to uh, you know to Leinster, say I need a backs coach. Um, oh, you the coach? You know, so the perception was you the coach, sort it out. You know, <laughs> and it was only I begged and smashed a few doors down, and Matty came on board. You know, so that took two years. So uh, it was a lot of learnings for all of us. You know, um, and. But without those learnings and without those mistakes and without that naivety, we wouldn't have arrived at where we are now. That's how it all happens. Yeah, yeah and because it's professionalism, I'm letting the lads speak. And, but the one thing I could throw in is to give you an idea of what it was like in the amateur era when you toured, when we went away to South Africa, Australia, uh, Romania, different places. We got four punts a day. And what I remember vividly was the... We didn't even have a team manager. The assistant coach, because uh, you had very small staff, went on those tours, used to keep the money and put it all together so we could each make one phone call home at the weekend. But there were different times. And, uh, and certainly the transition, I think Reggie probably experienced the best and the worst of it in many ways. Yeah. Going for one. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry, baby. Tell them about the game. What was the game? Yeah, we only got stuck there for like 10 days or something. <laughs> <laughs> <Okay>. <laughs> I don't know. I don't know what's relevant. But that was on a holiday. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Did lot, lots he of missed lot. that flight on purpose. He just didn't tell you. <laughs> well, we're getting it. Actually, it's funny. No, i tell you one like that. But Mike was talking yesterday about um, games we might have played against each other. The Barbarians used to tour every Easter in Wales on the Easter weekend on the... Uh, Good Friday, Holy Saturday, and the Monday, Easter Monday. There used to be three matches. And uh, I remember doing the first of those tours, and it was hell. Yeah. With respect, Mike, it was hell. Did you do any of them, Rich? No, you went on a Barbells tour? Uh, yeah. I, I, I was asked on a Barbells tour, and to my great regret, I wasn't allowed play because Ireland had a game coming up and Donald Lennon wouldn't let me play. And uh, what I didn't know at the time was if you ever say no to the Babas, you never get asked again. Yeah. And I never got asked again. <laughs> and, and that's that was, a fact. And, that, and I was so disappointed. 
is a question. But having from the done one of those sorry. tours very quickly, yeah, very yeah, quickly no worries, I, I no having done one of those tours, then the same time each Easter, and you may have done this one, Bermuda came on the scene, and there was the Bermuda uh, festival every year. So the choice was you either went to Bermuda um, uh, with the Irish, it was called a Golden Odie side, it wasn't, it was a representative side, or to uh, Wales on the Barbarians tour. So it was a no-brainer back then, unfortunately. <laughs> so you went to Wales. <laughs> <laughs> so it's a question from the gentleman at the front here. Gentlemen, uh, super evening, most entertaining. Thank you very much. Uh, a couple of points. Uh, I've played and watched rugby for about 60 years now. I'm with, with my son. Uh, I'm a Munster man. He's a Leinster supporter, which is a problem I'll sort out later on. But what, what, what I fail to understand, and I'm a reasonably intelligent guy, is New Zealand first started cheating in the line-out, and then Wales followed it with a plum. And now our legislators have got big fellas, uh, like the old nylon stocking, where if you got a bit of flesh, you had a great night. The, the bandages on the knees, <laughs> lifting fellas up in the air. Why in the name of good God, this don't you jump off your legs and you don't need a fella to lift you up in the end of the line out. There you go. There you go, Reggie. Well, I, I remember when lifting came in, clearly, vividly, and the, the whole point of it is, is just to get that extra height. But if you saw, uh, with all due respect to Tony, that first clip that we saw in 81, it was an absolute free-for-all, the line-out. There was just a shambles, fire the ball in and hope that someone got a hold of it. So, like, it should be an advantage to have a line-out. Like a scrum, you, you've worked hard to get a, a line-out, so it should be an advantage for you. You should have some chance of winning the ball back. Uh, I understand, like, some guys were able to be more athletic and jump up, but I think lifting just brought in a little bit more structure to the line-out and... Again, it's, it's progress. All, it all progresses. Like the Miss Scrums were a shambles back in those days too. And even when I was playing, it was just smash in as hard as you can. At least now there's a little bit of structure to it. So the, the game just evolves in different ways to try and make it a bit more entertaining, I suppose. I know, yeah. Well, I'll have to. Or we can have a discussion. I, no, no, no. no. <laughs> I, I, I think it's a great subject. But going back, looking at the old games and the Scrums and the lineouts, if they were great entertainment, Richard. There were, absolutely. Uh, there's no doubt about it. And, and, you know, you can't argue with that, but uh, things move on. If you look at football, maybe in those days as well, the shorts were longer and it was, it was a different game. Um, my, good to meet a, a Munster man. My mother was from Munster. She was from County Clare. Um, Kildyce, a little village down in County Clare on the Shannon. Do you know it? Uh, I spent a month there one night. Lovely little village, and uh, she was she left home when she was sixteen or seventeen, and emigrated to London. And I used to visit my Irish granny and granddad in London. And I took my mum back. She never went back till she was seventy years of age. Yeah, and she, what age? Yeah, exactly. Uh, so anyway, um, so got to talk to a monster man as I'm part Munster. Um, I'll tell you something now, uh, that I'm so pleased Lifting has come in. I do understand where you're coming from. And I, my village produced Robert Norster, who was probably one of the greatest line-out jumpers in, 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 in Welsh rugby ever. A gentleman, right? Rob Norster was from 
couple of streets away from where I lived. David Watkins was from my village. We produced a lot of international players. Rob Norster was a great jumper. But let me tell you, I played in the 70s and I played in the 80s in Wales. And it was a bun fight. It was violent. It was absolutely violent. And we thought it was part of the game. I've seen broken cheekbones, broken jaws, people getting punched from behind. And we just thought it was the game, right? Because elbows all had to win the game. What lineup lifting did, it cleaned all that up. It cleaned it all up. I used to have a second old Barry Clegg with me, a tough boy, had one cap for Wales, out in France, I still remember it. He caught every kick off, they booted him, booted him, booted him, he never had another cap. He should have had man of the match. But he used to say to me, he was a tough old boy from Neath, six foot six, he used to say to me, if you don't get him off my back, I'll knock you out. That was Welsh rugby. <laughs> and I was more afraid of him than I was of the other bloke. <laughs> <laughs> it was violent. I've got to tell you, it was violent in Welsh rugby in, in those days. So what line lifting did was it cleaned all that up. And I'm so pleased because suddenly my, my two sons went to play rugby and it was a much, it was a tougher game. Yeah. It was a harder game. It was a faster game. There were bigger collisions, but there were no, none of those cheap shots. Safer, safer from cheap shots. Last question from the lady at the front here. <coughs> Hi, um, this actually is a tribute to Tony Ward because I was a fangirl in the day. Hey! <laughs> <laughs> I close my eyes, threw back the curtain to see for certain what I thought I knew. Far, far away, someone was weeping, but the world was sleeping, any dream will do. And uh, well done. Well done. So, uh, well done. Well done. Thanks a million. Uh, so, uh, wonderful evening. Guys, thanks a million for uh, giving us your time. And uh, when I first moved to Ireland, uh, I was around 91. I went to, I used to go to a nightclub called Club 92. And, uh, and uh, Club 92, you know, you're dancing all night. And then the first time, the first time I went there, they, they just, all the lights came on and the national anthem came on. So I would like to leave you with the national anthem. And thanks a million for... Everybody for coming. Thanks, Reggie. Thanks, Mike. And thanks, Tony. Thanks a million. But I think Ireland may just have the edge on them when it comes to the home anthem.
president of the GAA. 